Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Rabbit, starring Marilyn Chambers, Frank Moore, and Joe Silver. Written and directed by David Cronenberg. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time for a new film review cast. This one we've kind of tailored all around around the films of Cronenberg. And we're going to get into a lot of his work. But up first from 1977, Rabid. This was actually a first time watch for you, Matt. Uh, We just kind of finished watching in the, the other room. So... Very anxious to, to kind of hear your takes on this. And you brought us a new bottle, and we just, off mic, did a little taste test. <laughs> but what do we got here today? Old Forster 1920 Prohibition style. That's all So when I see a the lake, less important part, because the big important part is that number that's the proof. 115. Oh, my gosh. So what I imagine when I see something like 1920 Prohibition era bourbon is this is trying to replicate a formula of what bourbon used to be yeah. made like before the regulations. <laughs> this is hard stuff. Excellent. Cheers, Cheers. Matt. Tastes like regret if you're not careful. It's easy on that, right? <laughs> you know, a very strong and pronounced uh, front end. You know, it's interesting, though. It's uh, Hold on, let me go one more time. I want to make sure Make sure on something. That's what that was supposed to be. Sorry. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> you know, we talk about usually finding some distinctive notes in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm picking any of those. Yeah. There's no leather or earth or pepper or cherry or it's just. I want to say. It's like liquor. I want to say I got a little bit of brown sugar, but that <laughs> might just be. Wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. We're actually, um, Matt and I usually go neat on the on the bourbon. We decided to go with a, a couple ice molds to, you know, help dilute it a little bit. So we'll see. We'll see what we can kind of come up with. We've uh, liked Old Forester. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say right now that I am one hundred percent in love with this. Yeah, I'm gonna need to. We're gonna need to spend some time with this uh, particular bottle, but uh, it'll serve its purpose for a while. But yeah, it's gonna take a bit of an adjustment. Most definitely. And Is one fifteen the highest we've done? Well, Mark brought that one that was that. I think it was one twenty. It was a rye. Yeah. I think that's the the winner yeah. so far. But real quickly before we get started, just want to highlight a, a couple a couple people here. Shoot the flick uh on Instagram. We had our top three uh, to, uh Pixar film rankings. They threw in Coco, Toy Story, and Toy Story Three, and then SMB Dave, Toy Story Three up and Coco. So kind of a lot of the same ones coming up in the in the conversation that, that we had. I really like that you put Brave in, in your top list. Well, thanks. Which is, um, you know, it's always fun to talk about the ones that don't get talked about a lot. So uh, thank you for reaching out to us there. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram or at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. But let's go ahead and dive right in with our flight question. You can't trust your mother. Your best friend. The neighbor next door. One minute, they're perfectly normal. The next, rabid. Pray. 
it doesn't happen to you. There's an art to the trailer of the 1970s and 80s with the voiceover. It's that's almost like a grindhouse aesthetic like trailer of like, don't go do that. Don't go do this. You can't trust anybody. You're rabid. <laughs> right. Um, that guy's voice got a lot of action, didn't it? Most definitely. Or there was a cadre of people that shared a very similar voice. That's so 70s. Trailer voiceover acting as <laughs> an art to itself. Yeah. We're talking about Mr. David Cronenberg today. I know we've been wanting to talk about him for a while, or at least I have, just because whenever you watch one of his films, the subject of the body always comes up in some way, shape, or form. And I think we're going to spend a lot of time in that space and in the horror genre, which is extra fun. Mm-hmm. But he's not the only one that's like really good at like making body horror films. And in fact, since like the beginning of like cinema, there's been a lot of films that have explored this particular topic. So, Matt, I just kind of want to know, what's your favorite body horror-esque film that's not made by Mr. Cronenberg? There's a lot that I I did some research on, and, and I want to bring this up, which is not my answer, but I want to put it out there in the ether for a okay. uh, future date. In the research that I did, and maybe possibly yourself, I came across a film called American Mary. Mm-hmm. Seen it? Heard of it? I have seen it. Um, okay, this is interesting because I saw it in a, at a weird time. It was my post Poughkeepsie tapes haze of horror. Oh man! So I didn't particularly like it, but I don't think that's a fair assessment because you were scarred. I was in I was in a weird place uh, filmically. I'm I'm glad you brought that film up because today's film Rabbit was actually remade in 2019, and it was it was remade by the sisters that made that film. I'm really intrigued by that movie. Yeah, uh, I think that space. These, neither of these are my answer. Well, let, let me give you my. Well, what should we do here? No, go ahead. Finish. This space that I'm intrigued by in American Mary has to do with what teeth failed to deliver mm-hmm. on. Cool idea, terrible execution, and what it follows was successful on for me in that film. I don't know how to quantify that or explain what it is. It has something to do with this, the aesthetic of sexuality through an effeminate take. Mm -hmm. I find that really, maybe it has some ties to me to noir and my interest in film noir and the film fatale. Exactly. All that's in that same area. I'm going to check that film out this week because I did like three or four different searches and that thing kept coming up highly on the list. And okay. I got to admit, I've never even heard of it. Okay. But don't go off of my no, I know. take. In fact, Matt, I've been thinking what would be extraordinarily carth- um, cathartic cathartic for myself mm. would be to actually revisit the Poughkeepsie tapes as an episode on this podcast because I know you've never seen it. And I kind of need to go back to it to squash some demons. (laughs) Okay, look, I have an idea with that. Okay. We are tangential seven minutes in, but that's okay. Yeah. That might be a cask, which was the off-putting films that changed us. So the Poughkeepsie Capes for you, Mm -hmm. Sweet Movie by Dusan Machiavea for me, Mm -hmm. and then two might be enough in that. I'm not sure. (laughs) One each. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just delve into that and force the watch. And not, not the... If it wasn't for the podcast, I would. I don't mean that kind of watch. No, I think in a weird psychological way of how we talk and dissect films, it might actually help me talk through what bothered me so much on the initial viewing. I've been thinking about that a lot, so if you're down. I'm down. Okay. 
It'd be hard. It's going to be hard to find sweet movie. But if we can't do sweet movie, then maybe we can do Montenegro. Okay. That's not quite to the level. I, sweet movie is the most interesting thing I've ever. I'll well, save the story for um, when we do that now. Because okay. I think we've sort of admitted that's going to happen or assign some future cast sure. for that. Yeah. I'll tell that story. But it's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in cinema happen during that. I saw that in college. Wow which is a pretty forgiving audience in a lot of ways when it comes to auteur or mm-hmm. avant-garde. Yeah. Not for this. Wow. It was crazy, wow. Jesse. Um, okay. Okay. So my answer is not American Mary, but that's on the list to watch. It's a movie that I actually like because it's gross and funny and has a pretty awesome cast. It's James Gunn's first film. Slither. Yeah. Good choice. Michael Roker, my girl, Elizabeth Banks, mm-hmm. Nathan Fillion, yep. and I'm not even sure who the woman is that gets the bathtub bit, but what she blows up into, it's gruesome and funny, and the, I don't know what you'd, seduction, intimacy scene between Banks and Roker when he's in that state of mutation, which let's give a nod of acknowledgement to fantastical special effects on how they made him look. Practical, Yep. It's terrifically done and a complete failure in the box office. Absolutely was crushed. And I think upon later viewing kind of it's, found its audience. Certainly. But that's my answer. Hard to tread that comedy and horror line, but yeah. James Gunn's, you know, pretty good at putting comedy in other subgenres. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen that with the Guardians, obviously. Great choice. Uh yeah, I haven't seen that movie in a in a few years. It's I might I might want to revisit that one too. James Gunn cask. <laughs> yeah. Uh Excellent. I want to throw out an honorable mention myself. I've mentioned this film several times. Uh, I don't think uniformly it's as body horror as as the next one I'm going to go into, but uh, got to throw a bone out there to David Lynch's Eraserhead, his first uh, main, mainstream. <laughs> Is that for the mainstream audiences? That's a big no. Uh, but just kind of the things that envelop in that film. If you've never seen Eraserhead, Pop it on so you know what I'm talking about. Your life will forever be changed. What is the what is your answer to the swaddled infant? What is that? Mm. What creature is that? It's, it's not human. What is it? It's like a chicken. It's like a chicken thingy. Yeah, chicken alien thingy. <laughs> Without limbs. Goodness. <sighs> and it cries nonstop. Boy, doesn't it? Then there's the lady in the radiator, and yep. then there's the actual eraser head. Uh that movie's wild. Uh, he might be in consideration for the third participant in that films that were off-putting mm. because <laughs> Wild at Heart is really off-putting mm-hmm. to me. Well, so is Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe not off-putting because I still enjoy those films, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, those are good. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about David Lynch for a long time too. Like yeah. He might have to be, come up here um, in the near future. My uh, number one answer is actually a film that was made a couple of years ago, uh, and it's called Goodnight Mommy. This is another type of eyes without a face-esque uh, movie where this woman goes and gets plastic surgery. I think it's plastic surgery. It's been a while since I've seen it, but she has some operations done to her face, and when she comes back, her children, her twin boys, are convinced that's not their real mommy. And where the real horror kind of comes is in the torture that they put her through to prove that that's not mom. When in fact, I'll just cat out of the bag. That is their mother. Mm-hmm. They're just completely insane. Another off-putting, that's just the word of the day, but uh, uncomfortable watch 
but dealing with the changing of the familiar, which is your face, mm-hmm. especially mother's face. I mean, get into that whole thing too. But I, I, always, I remember that one leaving me extremely uncomfortable. I, I hope more people uh, check that one out. Um, those two filmmakers uh, that, that made that actually made last year's The Lodge. Um, so they've kind of found their way to the American horror audience. But that was something they made overseas. And um, Have you seen that one? No, I have not. That'd be interesting. But I'm building a list right now of things that need to be done here pretty soon. Most definitely. Let us know your favorite body. I mean, there's so many to choose from. I mean, Cronenberg's got the uh, got the king's ransom, but you know, there's just so many. Even something like Freaks could kind of even be considered body horror to an extent. It's more body horror than natural. I mean, those are actual people with physical deformities. But in the way it's presented to us in that film is just totally horrific at times. Yeah, exploitative for the purpose of being that. That's the word, yeah. The bird lady. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, you ready to to dive in? Dive into Rabid? Let us know your favorite choices. Uh, Again, ricemileproductions at gmail.com. But let's head to Montreal, Canada and dive into Rabid. Ice, Bob. Christ. I better tell the boys inside. So Rabbit starts out with our protagonist, antagonist, Rose, uh, played by Marilyn Chambers and her lover, Hart, uh, as they get on a motorcycle and just careening through the Canadian countryside here. And there's a like a a van, uh, a vanished sorts blocking the road. And they just crash full on. The motorcycle explodes, but Rose is trapped under it. She is kind of lit on fire. She has internal bleeding. She's got like the worst, most severe injuries. And this is all juxtaposed with the bureaucratic side of this local plastic surgery clinic on whether or not they want to start making these resorts, these plastic surgery resorts. Again, like the monetization of what they offer in terms of the body. And so they're in the whole business of body dysmorphia, but for different aesthetic reasons. It's to look more youthful. It's to get a little nip and tuck. I find this incredibly fascinating, Matt, that there's this horrific accident, kind of, we're almost led to believe, kind of in the middle of nowhere in in Canada. Yeah. And the closest nearby hospital to treat her injuries is this plastic surgery clinic. Yeah, the next nearest one's three hours away. And they don't even have the equipment to like do the proper surgery than what they know, which is like skin grafting mm-hmm. and body tucking. What do you think of all of all that? And then I'm going to play the clip of what the doctor says, what they're going to do. What I think is interesting is David Cronenberg seems to be moving in a direction that's going to address vanity. If there is no hospital within miles from this place, However, there is a plastic surgery clinic just around the corner. You might surmise that that is the result of demand and not necessitated by 
the expediency of health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So if there's the nip and tuck joint around the corner and we're thinking about franchising that, that would seem to say that there's economic beliefs to support that endeavor. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, which is entirely not necessary, like want and need. We're talking complete want at this point. Yeah, who right? needs that? Right. So I think that's an interesting angle for Cronenberg to approach this from. And then he's going to double down on that pretty rapidly when we see the main star of the film, mm-hmm. Marilyn Chambers, shown and look has a background in the film industry that Hollywood, even though this isn't Hollywood, but like mainstream, essentially proper, would probably sort of shuck their, you know, thick beaks at or whatever Norman Bates says, sort of disavow any value from her because of her history in porn. But that's not the point. Well, I was. She's a nice looking woman in this film, right? Mm hmm. So we're talking about vanity, and I think that's the road that we're going down. Yeah. I don't know if that stays on that, if we stay on that road. But um, I think that's an interesting beginning. And, you know, the thing I noticed is after there's that explosion and she's pinned underneath the motorcycle and it's burning, Mm -hmm. how long is she burning for? Yeah, a while. I'm surprised there's at least because they can't get it off and they try to put the flames out with the blanket from the van that they crashed into. Mm -hmm. None of that works until the ambulance, which is also weird for a first uh, for a plastic surgery clinic to have an ambulance. Lime green, too. Isn't that weird? Kind of an interesting color. So that's what they show up in to pick her because they're just around the corner. The the casting of Marilyn Chambers is entirely fascinating to me because I tried to think of, like, has there been another adult film actor, actress that's really broken into, like, mainstream cinema? And I can't really think of any other than, like, for novelty. You know what I mean? Like, Ron Jeremy being in this movie because, and it's like a cameo, but we're, like, winking and nodding of what he's coming from. Uh those are some people, but like in here, they're like kind of all in on it. You know what I mean? It doesn't seem uh, like a gimmick. It looks like a role vehicle specifically for her to play on the body angle and the seductive uh, nature of what she ends up becoming is like this succubus of, of people and for blood, but it doesn't seem gimmicky to me, which when you hear adult film actress, you kind of, you go there. It's fair. Mm-hmm. There are lots of women, I'm sure, that could pull off seductive. Um, this isn't in the movie, but we watched a little bit of the David Cronenberg interview mm-hmm. after the viewing. Yeah. I think filmmakers sometimes have a rebellious nature to them. Duh. And I think him casting Marilyn Chambers in this is a little bit of a middle finger to the Canadian government that's funding his projects, which in a weird way, I'm not trying to be punny here, is sort of like cutting off your nose to spite your face because that's where the money's coming from. And he wasn't really happy with how they reviewed Shivers. He said something interesting, though. So, like, in Canada, like, the government, governmental, like, federal funds would go to the filmmaking industry Mm -hmm. uh, and help fund film productions. And he actually said something that's just why I love the horror genre so much, that Shivers is one of their first films that actually netted them a profit. Made money. The genre that keeps on giving. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure if I answered what you asked. I think it's a pretty solid choice for the rebellious nature, but I'm also going to pose this. There's, to me, Mm -hmm. she's the most capable actor or actress by a mile in this film. Yeah, the actor playing Hart is a Christopher Walken lookalike who's... The rest of them are all terrible. Concussed the entire movie. (laughs) 
so wooden. Every line is so like mechanical and robotic. The acting in this film sucks. Yeah, I don't want to say she's amazing, but she's definitely capable to pull off the role that uh, she's playing here. Uh, as we kind of get into it, there's a lot more going on with it. But I just want to talk, like, it doesn't seem gimmicky to me. No, me As either. like, oh, we got this uh, adult film actress to be in our movie. Like, it seems like, let's get her, and we're not even going to, like, kind of play up that angle, which is interesting to me. The gimmick in this, I think, would be on the cover, face value. It's some schlocky sex thingy. And there is definitely an element that we're going to get to with probing and penetration and a sexual element to this film, no question about it. But I think that's delivered relatively intelligently and a little bit cerebrally, so much so that he chose not to take the route of gimmick or novel and instead... Interesting. I won't grant him profound, though. Yeah. I'll say interesting, but not profound. Yeah, that's fair. Somewhere in that space. Sissy Spacek was in the running for the lead role. Would that have worked? Yes. Better? Oh. Worse? About the same? I don't know if it would have worked better. It would have worked. Yeah. That's the <clears throat> Carrie era of Sissy Spacek. And well, that's literally why she couldn't take the movie. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that she walks by that... Um, Carrie poster. Carrie poster. Yep. A little wink and a nod. Yeah, there's a moment where Marilyn Chambers is walking down the boulevard in Montreal, I mm-hmm. guess, past a movie house, and the Carrie poster is prominently displayed in the window of that particular bijou. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very. So she has to go to this plastic surgery uh, clinic for gruesome repairs uh, to her body, and this is kind of what they're doing with it. This is when you start playing fast and loose with science and, and skin grafting. Now, I know everyone here is familiar with standard techniques of skin grafting. But what we're going to do is a little out of the ordinary. I'll explain as we go along. We're removing full thickness, fine material from the patient's thighs as per normal graft acquisition procedure. However, before applying the grafts to the damaged areas of the patient's breasts, abdomen, and so on, we're going to treat them so that they become morphogenetically neutral. It will then be called neutral field grafts. Well, when the thigh skin tissue is treated, it loses specificity as both thigh tissue and skin tissue. For example, if it were grafted to a burned cheek, it wouldn't just be thigh skin with the color and texture of thigh skin. It would actually develop as facial tissue. In other words, neutral Field tissue has the same ability to form any part of the human body that the tissue of a human embryo has. Let me add that there is always a possibility that carcinomas will form when neutral field grafts are used internally. In this case, we're using a radical plastic surgery technique to compensate for the lack of heavy medical hardware. Can we treat graft material here, Dr. Cullen? No, Dr. Carl. Grafts will be frozen and sent to the Sperling Institute. So because they don't have an extractor or like uh, the proper medical equipment to do immediate uh, critical surgery, they're going to do plastic surgery-esque techniques to repair the damaged parts of her body. And he's saying a lot of stuff there and whatever. I'm not a doctor. And, you know, something's interesting. You know, when you write a screenplay and you say something, we take it as face value because it's in the movie. Right. They talk smart and, you know, we just accept it. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I think I find I find this aspect interesting because, you know, they're they're toying around with, you know, skin cells and they're sending them off to this other clinic to give her as pure of a product as possible. And in doing so, what ends up growing is not regenerative tissue, but a different apparatus of sorts, uh, kind of playing fast and loose with how the body itself works, how skin grows. They're changing that process. What do you think of all this? And I, when we watched it, you were kind of like, yikes, like the, the whole extracting of skin, the, like the machine itself is kind of, kind of horrendous uh, visually. Uh, but what, what do you think of all, of all this uh, as kind of just the mechanism to kind of get us going forward? That sounds terrible because mm-hmm. you're cutting the skin. And there's a subtle nature to the way that it's done to where they give you enough to tease it, but not throw it in your face. You get some of that a little bit later, but not in this scene. Uh, Yeah, I was a little bit um, bothered by how that was playing out for Rose. And then you get that really interesting moment where the piece of skin that they've grafted is laid on a strip of gauze and rolled up and then put into a canister to be sent off to some other institute. Mm Mm-hmm for whatever procedure is going to then affect Rose. Two things need to happen for me. Mm -hmm. In a way that Cronenberg is really good with, which is introducing another organism like a fly. Yeah. Something needs to happen when either the skin is rolled up so that it has a chance to mutate in there, or we have to get more of a story on what that other clinic is. Yeah, exactly. Neither one of those things are going to happen. Yeah. Because we jump to one month later and then like we just see the things drastically changing within her body. If something, yeah. No, right. I'm, I'm with you. There is a missing kind of component. Like when we talk about uh, the fly, you know, we see the visual evidence of the fly present to, you know, let us know the evil and the, the grotesque that's about to happening. And in this, we, 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 there's a gap of time where we don't see what happens and how those uh, skin jerkies... <laughs> Mm-hmm. are treated at this other clinic because that's what ultimately leads to to her condition. Uh, so yeah, I'm kind of on the same page with you actually. Where I'm on board with this, I just think this is really interesting that this, to me, plastic surgery, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's just, it is vain and oh, it yeah. is, it, it's, it's always kind of weirdly grossed me out. Yeah. There's something weird about the stretching of skin to make it look almost plastic-like. Yes. That's kind of grotesque. And of course, you see that a lot in Hollywood because Hollywood is an age game. And the older you get, the less work you get. Uh, but I've always been off put by plastic surgery in general because it doesn't look natural. I've never seen it look great. Yeah, no argument. Yeah. It, so, it doesn't move the way skin normally moves, even really good jobs. It's either too tight or too loose or too big or too round. Mm-hmm. We can go anywhere, places with that, and it applies to all of it. And it's just weird that this is their method to save someone's life because it's all they have. Like, this is their expertise. If we don't do anything, she dies. <laughs> yeah. And the patrons at this clinic are just totally crazy because, like, as we're kind of meandering around and uh, Christopher Watkins, like, he's getting out finally, but Rose is in a coma. He's talking with people, and they just talk so fast and loose about plastic surgery. Like, oh, I'm here for a little eye tuck. Like, it's no big deal. You know what I mean? This is a weekend cabin trip for me to get a little nip here and a little stretch here. Crazy. Absolutely like insane. And I know there's people like that. From Frankenstein to Eyes Without a Face, it's easy to take the plastic surgeon doctor or the 
surgeon whose expertise is the body Mm -hmm. and make them the villain and active. What I need to happen in this movie at this point is I need, instead of, they can have the discussion about franchising these plastic surgery clinics abroad, Mm -hmm. but we need to see a failed attempt. And then after failed attempt has been brought to the attention Mm -hmm. in the brass of what's the name of the clinic? Keloid. Keloid clinic. Great name, by the Mm -hmm. way. Sounds like celluloid, cellulite and all that's in play. That's perfect. Once the brass of the Keloid clinic has been made aware of what failures their procedures left this person looking horrible, then they get rid of that person. Yeah. And we've identified the bad guy. Yeah. And then I think it takes Rose from whatever she is to maybe anti-hero. Sure. Because I think there's an element of who she sort of attacks at the beginning to make you see. That guy probably has that comment to him, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially the guy in the barn. Yep. Um, and there's, I think some pretty fertile ground to draw from that mm-hmm. for, and, what, and I definitely want to talk about what Cronenberg had to say when he wrote the script. Cause that's really resonating with me right now. We'll get to that in a little while. Yeah. That was already established from Dr. Frankenstein to, I'm, I can't remember the, the guy's name, Christian's father in eyes without a face and many others that I'm not thinking of. Well, there's like that great scene in eyes without a face It's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, which is, it shows the the time lapse of mm-hmm. her failed face transplant and it, and it deteriorates like seeing something Necrotizes. like yeah, seeing something like that would have been pretty good in this. Yeah, and if a patient comes in and they're just looking ghastly because some procedure has failed and the skin is rotting and they cover it up yeah. or kill her or do something, mm-hmm. then I think there's a little bit more rooting for or rooting against that the movie um, struggles to find in the first act. Yeah, because at the end of the day, Rose has to act as both protagonist and antagonist at the same time, and that's that's kind of hard to do in a in a movie. Well said, in a horror film especially. Uh, yeah, so like let's let's kind of just get to the other nut of it. So we've established the body, the changing of bodies, what they've changed to Rose, and how that's uh, altered her. But then what Cronenberg's also really good at in in his films is exploring the extremes of sex and. Uh, what that looks like visually and uh, for Rose you know we just see her just like violently lash out at a lot of people and the one that always kind of sticks out to me is the one in the hot tub because it's almost femme fatale like seducing oh, yeah. no doubt I got a little I got a clip of that I thought everyone was asleep do you mind if I get in with you I've been lying in bed for so long my body aches all over I'm so glad I ran into you. Uh, well, I think I'd better be getting out now. I'm getting all wrinkly. Oh, no, not yet. You haven't even told me your name. Judy Glassberg. Bye-bye, Judy. Uh, the, 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 the courting process, if we want to call it that, does not sound malicious or violent at all. I mean, it sounds warm and welcoming and her presence is it like, it's, it's like a dance. She's almost like Dracula. It's like trying to get them in her trance because what she needs from these people at the end of the day that we find out is blood. Her cells have regenerated into not processing morphine properly or regular food. And now she's blood hungry. 
rabbit, if we want to go with the, with the title of the film. Uh, <clears throat> she has the hunger of mm. of sorts. So mm-hmm. good, especially in that first one, though, when the guy with the the eye tuck rolls in on her, and she's yeah full topless, and he just like hold me, make me warm. And when she sticks him, vamps him, yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, it's very orgasmic, orgasmic. yeah. <laughs> Jinx, <Cheeks>. Matt, <laughs> you owe me a whiskey. Oh wait, we got a whole bottle here. Uh, it's very, it's like mm-hmm. lovemaking, like, and but it's not like if you have, I if damn it, I wish I had the audio now because I, we would play a game. It was like, is this a love scene or a death scene? Because you couldn't tell the difference. Okay, I'm. I love that you said that because you know what I kept thinking. Mm-hmm. I want to rewatch this, even though mm-hmm. I probably won't. Mm-hmm. And in all of the scenes where the unwitting victim is being vamped, or sometimes entirely too ready to be vamped, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a bird like a bird's like effect in there. Mm. The tippy hedron scene in the bedroom where the birds attack her before Mitch comes in and there's these sort of orgasmic euphoric screams as oh, his exactly. birds are pecking mm-hmm. her. If you close your eyes and just listen to that, it's hard to tell whether someone is being attacked or they're having sex. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that this is in play in regards here. And I kept thinking about that in the film. Is this the bird's moment in the bedroom? The other thing too, is going back to the Marilyn Chambers gimmick. This scene in the hot tub, and I think it's interesting that you brought this up, mm-hmm. shows that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's on the sound because you found it effective. Yeah, She should be good at being able to deliver that. So the gimmick isn't a gimmick. That acting role, she's delivered a hundred times prior to this. The seduction, mm-hmm. whether it be hot tub with girl or just seduction. Yeah. She's good in that space, I guess. I mean, I don't have her anthology on my shelves or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I would imagine she's probably played that part a few times. <clears throat> so that's not gimmick. I think that's recognition of what you're good at in the acting realm. Mm-hmm. She delivers it really well. And you can, when she gets in the hot tub and it's that little white dress thing that she's wearing, I'm not even really kind of sure what clothes that it, kind yeah, of clothes just, those are, but they are, Upon any sort of moisture, mostly translucent, mm-hmm. of course they are. Mm-hmm. It really does work. Yeah. And what's the girl's name? Judy or whatever the hell her name is in the hot tub. Judy tux? Glassberg. <laughs> Has no chance. No chance. What's really interesting is now I want to see, and I asked you, mm-hmm. what did she do to him? Did she bite him? Like, I want to know what the process is. Mm-hmm. And by I, I'm speaking on that behalf of the audience. Yeah. What's the what's her what's her trick? Like what's the apparatus that is penetrating? Because we haven't seen it yet. And that's a whole other interesting piece too that I'd like to tell you by the end of the podcast, you'll know why that manifests itself, but I don't because we're not going to tell you that. Well, let's just talk about what it looks like. Because in Go. the very next scene, Dr. Kelloid comes in and was like, What are are you okay? I mean, they've had a lot of crazy incidents at this clinic in the last two days because of her, and they're trying to just figure out what's going on. And when he's kind of looking at uh, this open wound underneath her armpit, this it ha- there's this internal this phallic protruding object with the stinger that's coming in and out. And I told you, man, and I'm not trying to be like no, grotesque on the podcast. You got to watch the movie. You can watch it for free on Tubi, or it's streaming on Amazon Prime and the Criterion Channel right now. Three choices. It looks like. A sphincter or an anus, like like shape, and I'm not I'm not trying to be grotesque, but that's exactly what it looks like with a phallic like object coming out of it. 
I'm glad you said that because when I saw that, I thought, man, is Cronenberg trying to make a vagina here? Because that's the worst looking one ever. And you're right, it isn't. It's what you said. Mm-hmm. Here's the question. Yes, yeah. perfectly described. Yeah. I think we're supposed to deduce that that manifestation under or in her armpit, mm-hmm. which that in itself is kind of gross. Yeah. Is the result of whatever skin graft it was. And I'll remind you that the skin they grafted came from her thigh. So here's my big question, Jesse. Yeah. And I don't know how to go about this with tact and grace. So we'll just <clears throat> jump in both feet. Okay. Isn't the thigh the wrong skin to use here? Yeah. To create that. And yeah. I'm not trying to say <sighs> that there's enough skin anywhere else. And obviously I'm speaking about genitalia mm-hmm. that that would sort of play with because, or maybe there is, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It just creates like a new part. If Dr. Kelloid uses that piece of rose to fix whatever needed to be grafted, the broken piece on rose, then you have the objectification and dysmorphia and bastardization of feminine reproductive elements, which then gives Rose a more grounded approach to go after all of these men, which are mostly who she vamps short of Judy Glass, whatever the hell her name is in the hot tub. Judy Glassberg. <laughs> he got down. <laughs> David Cronenberg's a smart guy. Yeah. Jesse, this is a miss. Yeah. That's the wrong. That's well, no, exactly. This is, I'm glad you said that because to make it look the way it looks is smart. That's not done on purpose. Exactly. That is Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. For him to kind of miss in the way that it's delivered and executed, I attribute it to being a young filmmaker. Okay. I mean, this is years before he's really going to hit his stride with films like Videodrome and Scanners. then The Fly and like his peak 80s period. Sure. So I think he's still good. I think he's still figuring it out. Fair. But He's also smart because her name is Rose. You, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's not on purpose either. There is a a vaginal like nature to that. Mm-hmm. Not to get too Renaissance art on you here, yeah. you know, but like swans and roses have a huge purpose in art. Georgia right? O'Keefe. Well, I mean, we let's <laughs> know this turned into a um, art appreciation podcast, but no, that's that's not on purpose. Like he's no, it is on purpose. No, it is on purpose. Yeah, he, he's not stupid to just like do that intent, like unintentionally. Okay, and by the same token, her boyfriend's name is Hart. Sometimes you walk into a lucky name and it just fits. Like Ace works here for mm-hmm. Ace Ventura, or what? I don't know why I brought that up, but okay. Yeah, if it was Michael Bay, yeah, I'm like oh, you just like walked into that, but like not with these filmmakers. And I brought up Wes Craven as well. Yeah. When talking about him, because when you watch these guys talk, they make the most like gruesome, disgusting kind of looking film sometimes. And you watch them in interviews and they're the most mild mannered kind of like regular guys that went to school for like psychology. I mean, like they're, they're really smart guys that happen to get into filmmaking, which is fascinating to me. The reason I brought up teeth is I think when I was watching this film, I kept drawing connections to that movie. That movie's really frustrating. It's so close. I'm not saying that's like, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Teeth is on. Like, it's not that sort of joyous filmmaking experience, even if it was good. That movie, in theory and philosophy, is so loaded. Yeah. 
And the interesting piece for me in that is what happens if that becomes ravenous. And so for those that, what, what the hell is he talking about with teeth? Essentially, God, do I really want to, are we going to go down this road? I guess so. It's called venge- vagina dentata. Right. Her teeth, her vagina grows teeth. Yeah. And then all of the things that start to become into play there come into play there regarding predatory males mostly. There was a movie we watched as a, as a group years ago. And for, for the men, it was extremely uncomfortable because like, you don't want to see chomping down there. But it could be great and it's not. No, it's it's kind of a schlocky movie. Right. Yeah. Okay, so if Rose has an anus or some orifice that has the ability to extend a probe with a spike and it is done in complete control of the feminine empowered. Yeah. You're playing in a really heady space that's super interesting. Yeah. I'm going to make a crazy statement too. You know what does it better than this? Mm. Which, again, I'm going to go to the greats of film all the time. Yeah. Alien. Yeah. It's the same orifice with the seventh mouth that pops out covered in KY jelly dripping and snapping and like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same idea. Absolutely. And it works really well there. And that's that is a sec, that's a movie all about sex, of course, too, and a haunted house in space. But I need, again, speaking on behalf of the audience, yeah. how bold of me. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. Okay, so I need an explanation as to why it looks like that, what's protruding, or what the hell got put in that gauze when sure. the skin graft was sent to Clinic X before it was brought back and used on Rose to fix whatever was broken? Yeah, no arguing for me because I absolutely agree with you. I just I wonder also if like the budget is kind of limiting what we can show. It's a $1 million movie. That's fair. You bring up Alien, it's a studio 10 yeah. to $20 million film. Yeah. So maybe there are some a little, little limitations with what we do. But what does happen is, so now we've established the it, what's happening with Rose. And it spreads like wildfire. And this is kind of where we get to the title of the film, which is called Rabid. And that the way it's kind of treated and presented to us is rabies outbreak. Which I, I want to be careful. I don't want to call this a zombie movie because this isn't a zombie movie. Uh, to me, a zombie film is the undead, mm-hmm. uh, reanimated dead corpses, and these are fully conscious beings that are stricken with, like, a rage-like virus and hunger. I like, I want to use the word hunger because that's kind of what it's like. When you have the need to eat, uh, when you're hungry, you go into the fridge and you take something out to eat, but when the only thing you can eat is blood or, you know, whatever they establish, uh, it's it's a hunger that they're they're after. They're not dead, so I I don't want to call it a zombie movie because it's not. The road to rabies zombie thing that Jesse's speaking about essentially goes from some contact with Rose penetration from her armpit anus. Yeah. Whatever that is Mm -hmm. a poisoning, a forfeiture of your normal mortal faculties in a ravenous thing that just wants to eat or consume blood like a zombie. Well, here's a, None of that makes sense. Well, here's which an- is okay. Well, well, here's another thing that's kind of at play here, and because it is so phallic and sexual, is impregnation and birth. But also, I think because you're cellularly changing another person's body chemistry at a molecular level. Now we're talking about sex, but like yeah. at a disease level, right? So STDs and how this affects people. So yeah, 
and how that spreads like wildfire. I mean, this is a few years before the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, but it's kind of playing around with those ideas of how things can spread from a sexual nature. And it's not, they're not having sex to spread it, but the way it's visually presented to us is. So that's what she's doing is, is changing their cells yeah. at, at a molecular level is, is kind of how I see it. We need that... <laughs> spider-man scene where we go inside the cells and we see them changing but this just this just ain't ain't that movie uh but it starts with that farmer guy at that diner and i gotta tell you he orders barbecue beef and then he opens up the other guy's barbecue beef that ain't no barbecue beef i've ever seen no it looks like raw meat yeah that was kind of that was kind of gross and off-putting to me, but then that's when things start spreading, and this scene's almost kind of a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, the news catches us up on what the hell's going on here. The man, now identified as 43-year-old Fred Atkins of Camelford, went berserk this morning during an argument over who was to be served first and bit the counter girl on the arm. The man was subdued by an unidentified truck driver at the truck stop diner's cook, but died of unknown causes before police arrived. Local health authorities suspect that rabies might be involved and have vaccinated everyone concerned. Now, after this brief pause for station identification, we'll talk to a scientist who says that earthquakes may one day become a thing of the past. Do you want to go in for a bite? Like, it just, like, (laughs) so tongue-in-cheek. So, Kronberg's having a little fun with, with this at the same time. Now, I am curious about this because I can go left or right on this whole idea of where the story takes us next, which is this kind of citywide epidemic of what they think is rabies, but it's just like this like blood-hungry craze. Yeah. Does the film need to go that far and that big with it for you, or would you be more content with it being just Rose kind of vagabond infecting people as she goes? No. Because it gets big quick. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm glad you asked me that. Yeah. I thought that for the spread that is this rabies-like pandemic that takes Montreal and spends it into martial law, the effects of that were not big enough on screen to appreciate and entirely too rapid for me to believe. So my answer to that is no, it needs to be Rose's story. Yeah. Look, man, the armpit and what comes out of it is the most interesting piece of this movie and decoding that and figuring out what makes it work and how she controls it or does it control her and who is she going to use it on? What about her boyfriend? And all of that because it's Rose and Hart. Well, the scene I like is when the trucker picks her up and he's like, hey, do you want they're eating weird food in this movie? You want this steak sandwich? And she's like, yeah, let me because it's almost like she's like trying, trying to like, let me see if I can get back to that normal way of how I used to eat. And then it doesn't work for her. Her well, body see, rejects it. You just hit it, though. The thing that's interesting to me about this, other than that apparatus that emits, that screws you and, and makes you sick, is Rose is in control mostly of whom she wants to use it on. Like, she's actually pleading mm-hmm. with her friend who she's going to get a little while later, like, please let me go so I don't have to do this to you. Because, yeah. like, I have to meet this need. <laughs> yeah. And... You're the only one around here, so can I not... You, right? So she... Mm-hmm. Jesse, that's what is really great about It Follows. Yeah. The best part of that movie is when they go to the street corner, fully knowing that It Follows is going to come, It is going to chase them down, and it's all based on the spread of sex and who you've had sex with. And here's the street corner full of 25 different prostitutes, and they're $25 away. I don't know how much, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's some money away. 
from putting another person between them and their own death. And there's a moral crux there. Yeah. I love that in that film. Mm -hmm. And it's not even her. It's the friend that's been pining for her the entire film is like, I'm going to take one for the team. We have to break that film down sometime on here too. We've created 17 new casts today. Well, I would love to, because I've told you before that's people go left or right on that movie too. Well, I'm way right. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever, whatever that, whatever that meant. No, I know. I know exactly. Like, well, people either love it or hate it. I think there's no in between on that movie. So, Man, Rose is a really great character. Like I said, the most capable actress and starring in the lead role, I guess, as protagonist, even though she's not. Because she's kind of terrible with the things she chooses to do. Yeah, That's what's interesting. Watching the onset of martial law and lines, and this movie is about 20 minutes too long, too, from just suffering in, like, the shot, and you brought it up. Mm. Here's an example. Hart and one of the administrators from the Kellyoid Institute are driving in a car and you're in the backseat. It's sort of over the shoulder and Hart's just staring at the other guy. <laughs> like, is he going to kiss him? Is he going to like, what's going on here? And, and my, the most important, the, the, the most interesting thing in the whole damn scene is the coffee cup that's balanced on the dashboard. Cause we're thinking, I hope he doesn't hit a bump. Cause that's going to spill. It's a bad place for a coffee cup. That's a terrible scene. Yeah. It serves zero purpose. And there's 15 other ones of that in this film. Absolutely. That give me Rose doing something. At least she's interesting to look at. These clowns and this scene are pointless. Okay, we are in transit. Got it. No, I, I totally agree. And what they make the, when they're in full-fledged f- epidemic, I mean, they, they do their best to make it as interesting as possible violent-wise. And that they're... Uh, I always like that that particular scene where, like, the CDC guy or, like, the health official from uh, Quebec... Mm-hmm. Is driving, and they go down the wrong road, and these like construction workers come, and he sticks like this drill spike through the driver's side door, and like impels that guy. I think in the penis, like, yeah. like uh, again, like it's not intentional. Like where these people are getting bit and and maimed, like it's all you know. Cronenberg's in charge of all of that, right? So that's a pretty gruesome scene there. So like, well, I would rather spend more time with the seduction and vampiric nature of what Rose represents. They do a good job of kind of making the violent epidemic scene stand out uh, a little bit. Uh, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I love where you're at on that. You're, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. When Rose escapes the Kelloid, Kelloid Clinic, <laughs> Kelloid Clinic the first time, is it a mistake in script to send her back there? Now, if we're... Oh, re- when she goes to the farm? Yeah. Yeah, probably. If, if we're reworking the script, she can take out Dr. Kelloid and then flee the clinic and all of that still works. But she essentially, for everybody that hasn't seen it, which is probably going to be all of you or just about, she flees the clinic after she's come out of her month-long coma and essentially vamped already one person and is free on the run. And then after she takes down a terrible guy in this barn after she tries to feast on a cow but can't because it's not human he says something interesting or not interesting it's just grotesque i mean he says i'll give you something to drink and it's not my whiskey (laughs) right and this and she's got blood all over her mouth too so what's going on with that guy Uh, yeah he's got issues he's the guy that eats the chumps down on the barbecue (laughs) pit right with his strange eye so i guess she stabs him in the eye at some point too with her probe yeah in his eye i don't know anyway she after all that happens she should be on the lamb. And then you know what you get is her boyfriend with the help of that other guy yeah. looking for her. Mm-hmm. And then you get a bit of a chase film. 
and like following up with the collateral damage that she's left behind as this plague onsets the city and Montreal goes under lockdown, which then makes only travel all the more difficult. Yeah. Instead, none of that happens immediately. She goes back to the clinic to just hang out. All right, if that's the case and you go back to the clinic and you just realize you've done a terrible thing, then back to I'm conscious of this terrible power that I have and now I can play with the morality of it. All of the things that I just said happen to some level in this film. None of them are done or delivered to yeah. the level that make those fully realized and played out to their best. Absolutely. What about the scene in the porno theater when, when she goes, which I think is interesting because she is of that world. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine. I mean, like theaters of the 1970s, especially when we're talking about like this is like a, a 42nd Street-esque grindhouse theater. Man, they're just puffing away on cigarettes in there, eating. I, I was like, porno popcorn. Like, yeah. like, what does that taste like? I can't imagine. This is just personal. And sticky seats. Don't forget porno popcorn and sticky seats. I can't imagine Ugh. being in a room watching that with, like, a big group of people. You know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> so, But they're, like, all, like, into it. Like, they're, like, into the story. And that's the parts we're getting behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And then we get, again, where the film, I think, works good is the seducting aspect of Rose. And this guy that takes a shine to her and is like, here, let me kind of let you a little closer. And then it's curtains for him. Oh, yeah. Uh, does that work for you? What, what what about that scene? It's a rose scene, so works great. Probably one of the ones that works better. This very awkward approach that he rolls up on her with. They do, and I will say this: Cronenberg does a really good job of making the men that pursue her, with the exception of Hart, seem completely sleazy and gross and terrible hair and terrible. Well, we're gonna get to the we're, oh. gonna, we're gonna get to the Renaissance fair guy with his uh, horse riding pants. Well, that guy looks like. Um, beautiful compared to the dude in the movie theater. This guy's got the bearded eggshell, which is some version of hair that's not on the top of your head. You guys like the ring. He's kind of greasy. Bearded eggshell. That's, you know, that's, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he rolls up on her and they go through this really awkward tit-a-tat over quick one-liners and like, you know, not even as clever as did you fall from the heavens, you know, or whatever. Something stupid like that. In I'll also just say, Back in the day, if you like wanted to watch that content and you know whatever your thing is, that, that's you. I mean, you had to make efforts to go see that. You'd have to go yeah. pay three twenty five in the theater, grab your popcorn, and go see. I mean, like now, Ugh. you can just pull it up on your phone if you want. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like we've come a long way. <laughs> and I guess if she's looking for people that she needs to seduce in order to get her blood fix, a porno theater makes sense. I guess I, I really, I actually do like this scene. Well, see, the, the the men she's preying on are kind of despicable then. Despicable. Yeah. And ugly and sleazy and, again, so now we're anti-hero. Mm. Sort of. Yeah. Right? He takes that popcorn from the bucket, looks at her, and then puts it back. And instead, with his still buttery, greasy, salty hand, pulls her in close, which she allows <laughs> to happen, and slides his hand in her blouse mm-hmm. to cop a feel. And man, this guy's lucky. He's a second base and we're out of the, still in the first scene of the movie, right? Yep. She lets all this happen, And then in a really well done way, she gets him. We know, cause we see her leave the theater by herself and we go back to him and he's laying there in some state of, um, barely coherence with the prick mark on his hand that was in her blouse and the little penetration, and then the leakage after. Man, that is just dripping, literally, with sex. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And at the same time, I mean, the, the, this whole film is, is crazy because like that's juxtaposed with the epidemic going on and just because of what year it is and what we're going through right now. I mean, yeah. people are having to like prove their vaccinations with vac- vaccine cards. And I love the scene where like the health official from Europe comes over and is like, if they're infected, it's too late for them. Their best plan is to just shoot them dead in the street. So then there's this patrolling street brigade in Montreal that's the shoot and cleanup and disposal unit of the rabid, which is like dump trucks. It's like the garbage men. That's interesting to me. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, this is how we're treating it. Shoot them. I'm going to wipe your, because Hart's driving. A rabbit jumps on his windshield. They shoot him dead. They pull him off, put him in the back of the dump truck, sanitize his windshield, Time to go on about his night. On your way. That'll be now. Head on, buddy. <laughs> like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's so nonchalant. And I don't know if there's like a twinge of black humor in like the way that they go about that, but. Well, there is. And it's similar to the Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were all messed up. Like that roving band led by that ridiculous oh, police God. sergeant that's about as smart as a bag of rocks. We got to do that movie one day. And just the way we dispose of these, we'll just start a, barn, a bonfire here in the middle of this field and just burn them all down. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, to Cronenberg, good job. Like, that worked really well in that film. Use it, because you should. Yeah. But back to the question you asked me a few minutes ago. Is this the onset of epidemic and martial law story or Rose's story? It's Rose's story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the government stepping in in this very cavalier sort of way is another great opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm for Cronenberg to make a statement about the overseeing, we know what's best for you, we not the government bullshit that... Um, We're the government that film funds your film. Well, right? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot at play there. It's there. It Again, it just doesn't quite take it all the way across the finish yeah. line. And I just wonder, it's just like it's... You're too young. It's a $1 million film too. And, to, and, and you're young. And he's young. You're figuring it out. You're figuring That's out right. what yeah. your thing is. Yeah. I mean, we've established Cronenberg as this body maestro kind of guy. This is his second movie, r- really. So, is it? Is it? I'm going to ask you a question. Go ahead. Is it too much to ask that with a one million dollar budget, and especially the difficulties that Cronenberg admits to pinning this script, which you and I both said this doesn't really seem like that tough a write. Yeah. What do we know? But actually, we do know mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit. That's that that movie's not a hard right if you choose what the story's about. Yeah. So I wonder if anywhere in that process that he wrote with his girlfriend that eventually became his wife, if any of them said, Are we maybe being a little too ambitious for what the budget of this film is? I think so. I agree. And I wish because he's close to it. I know I've been a little bit hard on this. He's close to like a masterpiece here. No, sure. And if like you I- pump the brakes and just back it back, ooh, 30, 40%, and you just make it rose, which is super, super affordable. I think you have something that's pretty profound. This is interesting because we've, you and I personally have never been in this space, but whether that be Dario Argento or Cronenberg or even like John Carpenter, we've never been in a space that like what we're literally writing, we know is going to be made. You know what I mean? God, to have that no, terrible, to, terrible curse. Yeah, to have that curse. But Jeez. like when you're, <laughs> no, I think you hit it on, on the head, like what he ended up putting together and when he brings the government aspect into that, whether it's his wife saying like, this is over a million, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we got to kind of cut back on how we're showing that and how we're presenting that uh, because we know this is going to be made. And I think we're hitting at a lot of the missteps that you're alluding to 
in that aspect of the writing, uh, which is interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not a hard ride. This is it's a virus uh, uh, sex movie, body sex movie. Yeah, we've written harder, but like in the moment, and you're under like a deadline. I can see the the missteps you could make in getting to the finish line. And I think in 1977 there was already a fairly robust volume of prior work that he could have referred to for those places that it got sticky. Most definitely. Yeah. This is, we're one year away from Don Romero coming back to Dawn of the Dead. I mean, he's going to tackle kind of some of these aspects of that. Again, this isn't a zombie movie. <laughs> right, right. But let's get to, I, I had to turn to you. This is my favorite scene of the movie because of how just absurd it is. And I think this is, again, the black humor aspect of how that works in horror sometimes works for me. Do you want a cigarette? Okay, for, we're going to talk over this. This guy rolling up on Marilyn Chambers is, in the wear, mall. is wearing riding pants. And she's in a fur coat. Oh, have you got a light? A lighter? I'll get a light from that guy over there. Right how, how does someone who's like has cigarettes not have a lighter? Exactly. Like, first of all. You got a light, buddy? Okay, so this guy is rabid. Okay, so I know that sounds like chaos on an audio clip, but the Montreal government has been given orders to shoot first, ask questions later, <laughs> and not just like with a like a revolver. This guy's got has like a fully automated machine gun in a mall. <laughs> right. He's a cop. Yeah. Sees a rabbit, chases him down, guns him down, but then blows away Santa. Santa. Oh my god, like mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. You almost have to chuckle at this moment and this is, again, Cronenberg finding the humor in the dark, which it, you mentioned Slither. This isn't easy to do in horror. There's another piece that's just before what you played in the audio that revolves around Santa. So pick that scene up in the mall mm-hmm. with the kid sitting on Santa's lap. And the girl that is sitting the kid on Santa's lap is literally in the shortest elf. <laughs> like, it's just sex on high. Yeah, Her ass is hanging out of the bottom of that. And yeah. this is a kid's thing. So he is very aware, again, back to how smart Cronenberg is, and I think we've sort of agreed that sure, he uh, just hasn't quite honed it in yet. He's making some satirical statements about vanity and sex and consumerism and Renaissance workers after their day at the fair is over and the fur coat that she's in, which there's a whole play on that as well we can get into. Sure. That's her uniform for consumption, right? Because she puts it on. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. And all of it's there. It's all there if you want to dig into it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to to back up your point, poor Santa. (laughs) Just blow him away. Like this. Gun down. Like this. A mall cop. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't even need a gun. Paul Blart kills Santa. They have segues. This guy has like a fully automated machine and just gun. Oh, it's just, it's kind of hilarious. Like I'll just, I'll just say it right now. Like, like when you watch it, how do you not like chuckle at like the absurdity of this scene? But I think that's 
to the master of Cronenberg of like when he's kind of honed in on something that he's kind of all in, he's good at a lot of different things. And you said it really good. He hasn't figured it all out yet. He hasn't put that together in a complete package. The yeah. humor, the body horror, the sex aspect, the psychological themes he's trying to get down to, it's still raw for him. And that's no Work fault in progress. Of, that's no fault of the filmmaker. We covered Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, and we had a great time talking about that movie, but that's far from like... Mm-hmm a completely well-made movie for me until he gets to his next film, which is Halloween. I mean, you do have to take a few steps before you get to that step. Timing is everything, right? Yeah. If this is Cronenberg's sixth film instead of his second film, Mm -hmm. we're having these same discussions, but we are extolling these virtues on high instead of lamenting over some of these minor frustrations absolutely it's the same with spielberg i mean like Mm -hmm. you see the evidence in a film like duel yeah and then you see it on full display in something like jaws well said two two totally different speaking of jaws Mm -hmm. take a picture of you okay the shirt matt's wearing is just like on another level so yeah uh i absolutely love it but let's get to the final scene of this film so heart and uh rose reunite and you know again heart has been like concussed this entire movie and he yeah. yes he he comes and meets Rose and he kind of figures out like what's been going on this whole time it's you it's been you all along what are you talking about you carry the plague you've killed hundreds of people what you're talking about i'm still me i'm still rose you're still rose you're not rose what are they doing at that <laughs> clinic hey what are they turning you into i have to have blood it's all i can eat and it's not my fault it's your fault Marilyn Chambers is pretty good in the sequence. She sure is. Uh, and this is such an interesting scene because, okay, so like I don't want to like pigeonhole anyone in into this sequence because I haven't been there personally, uh, but this is like someone having to tell somebody like, hey, I gave you this venereal disease mm-hmm. and like, and they're kind of passing blame back and forth. You know what I mean? This right. is that type of conversation. Uh I think handled pretty well. And then it, it ends up into like a series of comedic pursuits where they're fighting in a stairwell and Hart gets concussed again. He, th- this character's interesting. You got to see this movie because he's like half there the entire movie. Insofar as his screen time or, or capabilities because he's not in a state of concussion. Yeah, just cognitively. Like yeah, he's good. like when you watch him on screen, he's just kind of he's there, but he's like not there. Looking like Christopher Walken, but then like when he shows, and then he gets another head injury. It's just all very fascinating because what he sees, it's the evidence that he sees. And this means nothing to the people in Montreal that are just like getting shot and gunned down and pussing green at the mouth. He sees the phallic protrudence coming through her armpit and puts two and two together and says, this is you. You've done all this. You've infected all these people. But Rose has one other trick up her sleeve. <laughs> Matt, you got to give that to me. That was uh, uh, you, <laughs> mm. 
Swing for the fences, Casey. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. Hearts concussed, but she's going to prove it isn't me. Mm-hmm. I'm not to blame. Mm-hmm. So she finds a random patron in this apartment that she's at that's her friend's uh, apartment. Does the same protrudence through him, lets him wait out the coma. And if he wakes up crazy, yeah, she'll be at fault, but she wants to kind of run this little experiment. And as we get into the kind of final thing where she finds out, yeah, this guy reanimates into a rabid state, takes her over, and we kind of come to like a morbid-esque conclusion. I mean, what's the conclusion at the end of the day of this film, Matt? I mean... There's something pretty dark about your protag slash antagonist being loaded up into the dump truck to be crushed. You know what you know what I mean? The state of Montreal at this point, I imagine, is fairly grim and morose. I mean, people being just like gunned down and pussing all over the city. Ugh. I don't this isn't a film with a happy ending, or at least because we cut to black here once she's loaded into the garbage truck. What do you think of how this thing wraps up? Okay, back to reference Night of the Living Dead. It's similar to Dwayne Johns and the way he's thrown away on the pyre. Absolutely. Having been the hero the whole film. She's not. But forgotten and in the midst of this pandemic, you can make the case that the individual just doesn't matter and there's a lot there to play with. Yeah. I have to say something. Like, no, go ahead. Yeah. I, I want that to work. But as much as he admits to the script was a struggle to write... Did he just defer to dark and final because there was no other ending that he could possibly come up with? Which we like that. Yeah. And it's better than I'm just not going to bother to finish a lot of my films, Alfred Hitchcock. And because <laughs> um, here's the question. Yeah. If he bites her after she's vamped him, then... Why does it kill her? Because she's dead. I mean, she's in a state of rigor mortis, not turned. She's dead. She plays that really well. Oh, my God. Good for her. Like, yeah. you can tell from this film, like, that's a, that's a gal who's in shape. She's got some, like, her, her muscular structure in this film is solid. Like, yeah. Marilyn Chambers is in good shape in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she plays rigor mortis really well. And there's an art to that. Yeah. I, I don't feel sorry for her because she's been portrayed as the bad guy. Sure. It's over, and I guess we're getting there, making some headway on bringing the streets of Montreal back under control. I guess I care. And Heart has closure. And all of those are acceptable endings, except... Hang on. What the fuck is Heart's closure? He knows she's gone. <laughs> Him bashing the... F- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To me, Hart's a nothing character. Okay. Almost. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even going to argue with that. Yeah, yeah. All of those things that I just tried to graciously give Cronenberg mm-hmm. don't address the three big things, and that's, was this movie about vanity? Yeah. Was it about allowing some corporate model control of your body, or was it about a character study in Rose? None of that is is finished at the end. It almost like it needs to end because the Canadian government ran out of money and time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, fair. I, I'm, I'm on, that's a distinct possibility. Yeah. Hey, the sh- 90 days are up and movie's over. How do we know? I mean, like, well, yeah, that, that's great. It's just crazy to me that a government would fund film production. You like ambiguous and dark endings. Mm-hmm. So let me give it back to you. Go ahead, run with it. I think it works a little bit better for me. Okay. I mean, like the, there's something just so th- 
thrown away like trash of someone being loaded up into a dump truck and then just to be driven away. You know what I mean? Uh, so there is kind of like a throwaway-esque nature to the ending of the film. But then it's kind of left open-ended, too. I mean, did they get everything under control? Did they solve the the crisis? Did they, fi- uh, they obviously didn't figure it out. To me, there is a colossal miss at the end of the film because when they load her up into the garbage truck, her right arm is kind of like hanging up. It's the other arm that has the protrudence on it. I would have liked to have seen like a tease of that aspect that those garbage truck guys missed before they crush her. You know what I mean? Because then where's the evidence? It's gone. That's yeah, good. So that's good. I do like the ambiguous nature of it, but I I'm, I'm, I am left wanting a little bit more uh, yeah. that that he's given to us. But again, yeah, when your government's financing your film production, like when the money dries up, like, like we got to end the movie. Cronenberg admits in that post-credits interview with him that he struggled to find a linear story to tell in this and that it was all over the place and with the help of his girlfriend who later became his wife they were able to get to fade out in the version that i guess we saw hang on a second that's like if the united states government decided to like use federal funds to like fund Zack snyder's justice league that we're going to cover in about a month yeah what the fuck? Right. Like, no, like, no way. We're not going to fund your movie. Like, that's right. crazy that it, government's involved in film production. It, especially when you consider what the money's used for and then the censorship and all of the bureaucratic bullshit that goes along with it and what's an art. Absolutely. Right. I agree mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. And the frustrations from Cronenberg are expressed in that interview. He says, like, they basically funded my I movie was, and then in the in the critical reviews, killed it. Yeah. Like, well, your tax dollars went to pay for this shit, but we know because we, we financed it. I was glad I... Turn that on. Just so I'm we, glad you did that too. So just so we could get kind of just a peek into the man that is we're going to be spending a little bit of time with. Because we did that with Friedkin too. And he's that's another fast and loose kind of guy Yeah, uh, discussing when we tackle a, a director, which is kind of what, you know, podcasts, you know, we like to tackle those type of things. The movie's over and her character arc is over. The pandemic is not over. So yes, you're right. There's some possibility going forward. Sure. But for me... I don't care because Rose, this was Rose's movie. I found her to be really, really interesting. And now that her story's done, then the story's done for me. I'm in the same boat with you, Matt. Okay. Do you have a favorite tasting note from Rabbit? Like a scene that just absolutely sticks out to you? Yeah, I really did like that scene in the movie theater and the porn theater. Uh, She's so comfortable and awkwardly comfortable with it. Um, And the way that that guy... Oh, I want to say one more thing about Hart. Of all the men that pursue her in this film... I think it's a pretty smart cast with that guy that plays Hart because at least he's clean and his hair looks mostly like styled and he's not other than those weird polyester leather pants that he has at the end. Oh, oh my God. Not, Hang on a second. Hold on. Not this, a gregarious looking weirdo like everybody else from a Renaissance fair that tries to get her in the sack. Hang on. This has to be addressed right now. <laughs> okay. This is the most 1970s film I think I've ever watched because yeah. that picnic table bedding that she's laying in at her friend's house and then you and i were on like a a osmosis level watching this movie because we were thinking the same thing we just didn't want to talk about it until we did hearts pants hearts is wearing these like you and you said polyester jeans that's kind of what they look like but they might be leather like you said what the hell not comfortable in either case people wearing in the 70s (laughs) chafing there is no room to move around in those jeans i mean that's right the comfort level you might have like looked cool in the 70s your comfort level is a zero 
unless you have a penis armpit, <laughs> then you can move around. That's my final assumption about the movie. <laughs> no, good choice. Like, I, I like how they shoot it from the front. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, because you, because then I get that environment of, man, how are people acting in this? The, uh, they're all engrossed in this movie and they're not watching the sex parts. It's the story elements of these movies. They're like into it. It's, it's weird. Nobody. <sighs> I can imagine yeah. is ready to chow a bucket of popcorn in a porn theater. Mm-hmm. But the gritty nature and her, I don't care that your greasy, salty hands are now all on my breasts works perfectly because she's setting him up for what she needs to do, which is eat Yeah, that scene. And then to do it in the theater, which is an acknowledgement to her background as well. Absolutely. Again, like we're, we keep bringing this up, like Krumberg's all around it and he can see it and he's identifying it and he's playing with it. He's just not quite finishing it. Just to put us in that like space, like just to like, let's imagine you and I are making a movie. Okay. That'd be awesome. Yeah. But like we're making the movie, but then like we got like the government breathing down our backs about how we're using the funds We've put an adult film actress in her. Like I can, I can, I can imagine just being like completely wigged out making this movie. The writing, the shooting, and then the suits in the background. They're not studio suits. They're like politician suits. It's this is kind of nuts. This is kind of a crazy production. Like to make a film like this in Canada in 1977. I think in the last six months, maybe this is the fourth Canadian film that we've covered. Uh, whether it's in discussion or proper. So Black Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, Prom Night, and this. And then I know we've also discussed A Christmas Story. Yeah. You can tell yeah. that it's a Canadian film because it's like the pretty capable adopted to step little brother of Hollywood. Absolutely, yeah. I, it's Mm-hmm. You can tell mm-hmm. like they're in the family. They yep. sit, have dinner at the same table and they mostly have the same family values. They're at the kitty table. Right. <laughs> but they're just not quite lineage. I'm glad you brought up prom night because I would never bring this up, but for the horror, and I think we got a good horror audience that listens to our show. Mm-hmm. When I tuck a guy goes to the general hospital to get his gruesome repairs for his armpit wound, He's sitting next to a bed with a guy with a, like a comb over. Mm-hmm. That guy's the janitor from prom night. Like he's a Canadian actor. Like, like you that. can kind of just see like the connections. They're using the same talent. You know what I mean? I'm going to give it to you on that to know that. That's a deep cut. Like you don't forget that guy's comb over. You're sick, man. You need to get out more. Maybe I do. Or, uh, <laughs> or I need to stay in more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> one, of, one of the two. My favorite tasting note, I like. I really like that scene in the barn because that lets us know that mm. a animal blood ain't gonna do it. It has to be human blood. So then it's kind of vampiric, you know what I mean? Then we're going down a whole another road if we want to go that way, and that's why I like horror. Horror presents these avenues of dissection that if you want to go that route or that route, and we, you could have gone left and I could have gone right, and we could have come up with two totally different interpretations of this movie, and you you can't do that with any other film genre. It struck me about that cow scene too. I love that you chose that. Yeah. Is that as she's vamping him, she's petting him. She recognizes, I think, the peace or the tranquil nature of that creature, and it's not predatory after her. And she's trying to soothe it. 
I don't want rabid cows. That sounds terrifying, but I don't know if it takes because mm-hmm. the blood from the cow doesn't work to sate her hunger. It's a different cellular structure, but she's got her head on his shoulder and she's gently stroking him as she's feeding on him. That's kind of genius. Here's the other thing where I smile audience. I like, you might be in a different just film viewing camp, but like you should want to go see as many movies as possible. Yeah. The good, the bad, the ugly. Right. So whether you've seen this or not, like what we've described, you should at least check it out just so you can see visually what this looks like. Uh, In film, knowledge is currency and familiarity is currency. Absolutely. Because it gives you a larger speaking and understandable pulpit from which to approach future viewings from. Mm -hmm. I kind of agree with you. This is a must and and I'm, I'm glad you've given it to me. Thank you. Yeah. This is a must. Yeah. If you're a zombie fan, it's a must. If you are a film fan, must horror certainly this this is well. I thought this that, is a must. I thought this was interesting. So on Instagram stories this week, I threw up a thing of Are you a fan of David Cronenberg? Hundred yeah. percent. There was no person that said no. I am no fan of Cronenberg. So if you're a fan of the guy and you haven't seen Rabbit, you have to. Yeah. So you got to complete that. That's funny. You know, now that you bring that up, mm-hmm. I don't know someone that doesn't like his stuff, unless you just hate horror. Yeah. But, right, you know, you're sitting here in the presence of two also fans of his. Yeah. We're going to come back to, we're doing three films of his and then another Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. We have to come back to him because we're leaving some crucial things off his filmography that weren't talking to. Videodrome in and of itself is loaded with Mm-hmm. commercialization, media, sex, like mm-hmm. videotape into your abdominal cavity. Like, oh, yeah. We have to get into that. And then we we have to talk about history of violence. I would love to tell some of the stories. On a personal that. level. Yeah. But Matt, there's any number to choose from, but what's your... Oh, my God! And we're going to do Troll 2 one of these days for fun. But, man... What, oh my God, I need to take a shot of the more Old Forester Prohibition-style whiskey to just wash my palate of what I just watched. When Dr. Kelloid picks up her arm and looks at her armpit and you see the orifice with this living, completely detached, yet entirely dependent on her body thing operating underneath the skin, you kind of want him to peel back the layers so that we can see it. And he does a little bit like he spreads it, which is all too completely sexual as well. I'm really glad we get to watch the movies together sometimes. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. scheduling, we might not get to watch, you know, everything together. And when that scene took place, you know, I look over at you. I like, I, I, I take a little yeah. glance at you to see just how, like, how you are. And I, I get, your body language alone tells me how you're reacting to something. What was I doing? Well, just kind of like it's just either head shakes, but I can even tell your head shakes mm-hmm. when you hate a film and when it's making you uncomfortable. Yeah. So it was in the latter. Yes. Yeah. It's so ugly, mm-hmm. but interesting. And yeah. there we go with Cronenberg, right? Yeah. Let's find the way to make the really ugly, horrifying, interesting Jeff Goldblum. Tease. No. Mine's got to be the Santa scene. <laughs> How are they gunning down this rabid scene and then they blow away Santa at the same time? I mean, it's just so absurd. Yes, it is. And you have to, if if you have a soul mm. to last week, mm. you kind of have to laugh. 
Yes, it's funny. It is funny because it is just so ridiculous. Why does this cop have a machine gun? First of all, and why is he gunning down? And then he blows <laughs> away mall. And he blows away Santa. Well, the other preposterous part of that is like there's any sort of regular commerce that can be engaged in the mall while we're in the middle of some rabid outbreak and lines to get into the store. Like, no, everything else is good. We're going to patrol this area with these guns in the middle of this outbreak. But no, go to Chess King and buy your... I have to see Santa at this time. (laughs) Exactly. I don't care if people are eating people in the street. Jesse, (laughs) again, that is just such... Thank you for doing that. Is such good evidence of he's all around the target. Now it's a middle finger to like consumerism. He's he's close. I almost wonder if this inspires George A. Romero and his mall bit with his zombie stuff because he's Cronenberg's ahead of him on this. You're away, yeah. It's good. You're right. That is good. Who's the master distiller on Rabbit? I'm going to give it to Marilyn Chambers. I'm going to give it to her too. Yeah. I mean, like say what you will about the adult film industry and that's not this podcast, but whatever. We're never doing that. (laughs) She's very good in this role that was written for her and that she was casted into. I mean, it's a succubus. It's seductress. It's a vampiric, whatever horde trope you want to put into that. She's good at it. She's incredibly sexy, Mm -hmm. but I I don't want to... She's not a bad actress in this movie. No, not at all. In another role, yeah, maybe, but not this movie. Again, I don't... Like I said, I don't have an anthology of all porn actresses and their Mm -hmm. works, but at this time, she was the first successful crossover. Like, I know Tracy Lords does a little bit, and then uh, the gal... I can't believe that's married to Gene Simmons or his lifelong girlfriend, um, Shannon Tweed. Is that her name? Yeah, exactly. So there's some other ones in there, but she's the first one, Mm -hmm. and... I just think entirely capable. And I don't want to say wasted because her career wasn't wasted. She did with it what she did with it and good for her. And everyone pretty much knows who Marilyn Chambers is. So good for her. I mean, for the film presented to us and given to us, she's really good at it. You know what else is really amazing to me? That part when she's going through th- some state of hunger at her uh, roommates or in her the, friend in the bathroom where she's just writhing around on the floor. It's easy to change dialect or show expression and face, but to be a physical actress, again, back to what I said, maybe Marilyn Chambers was the perfect choice for this because she's good. Like, how do, how do I say this? But I mean it. She's really good at the physical. Yeah. And that scene, although isn't sex, the writhing and the control of her body in some masterful way that expresses emotion, that scene was amazing. Well, I'll say this too. I mean, like, we're going to... Because Boogie Nights was on your top three, I must cover in the next 100 episodes. I almost just brought it up again. He said, we don't, we're not going to do that cast, but we are going to do Boogie Nights. I just wonder, because like, it is such a derived industry, and it is what it is. How many more actors within that industry also are capable of delivering like amazing performance? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I sure do. I had, how, do you, how do you know unless someone takes a chance on you? I mean, Credit to David Cronenberg and Ivan Reitman of that, Ghostbusters fame. Right. I saw his name on there, and I almost said, Jesse, that was Ivan Reitman that we just saw in the titles. That's how they came together. I mean, they formed like a co-op, a film production co-op in Canada, and Ivan Reitman went this way and did, you know, Stripes and Animal House and Ghostbusters, and Cronenberg, you know, did <laughs> The Brood and Scanners and The Dead Zone. I mean, like, that's they met together in Canada. To the wisdom of the Canadian government to recognize young talent. <laughs> but okay, I guess caught lightning in a bottle. Absolutely. How are you going to rate and grade uh, the 
Rabbit. We have Rock Gut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Can I go first this week? Absolutely. I'm a I'm a Cronenberg head. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, I suggested this cask uh, for us because I am a fan of his movies. And when watching this one, I'm in full evidence exactly of what you said. He's dancing all around what he's really good at, but not quite landing. You know, you know the alley oops and the slam dunks. We make sports uh, references all the time. This is kind of like a call minus esque film for me. I mean, it's it's good. I mean, it's it's enjoyable if you want to take the ninety minutes to watch it. But he's so close to like you said, knocking it totally out of the park. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get to that in the in in the coming weeks. But he's not quite there yet, and I think it is because he is so young. And yeah, you're making a movie with governmental funds and limited, right? Absolutely. So that's. It's a knock against the film, but it's also not a knock against the film. It's it's kind of stuck in a weird gray space. Yeah. So check it out. I highly recommend at least checking it out. And I think you you would say the same as well. So what are you giving it? Call? Like a call minus. Yeah. Yeah. I'm exactly the same place. I probably wouldn't go quite to call minus. I know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And we probably don't get the stuff that's coming if this doesn't happen. And to stick with your sports metaphor and steal it, the rumor is once upon a time, Michael Jordan was on a JV basketball team. How? And we, well, but we know what became of that. <laughs> Absolutely. So Cronenberg is the starting point guard on the JV of horror at this time in his career. And he's got a shitty coach, which is the Canadian government that's all too oppressive and restrictive. And pretty soon he's going to become a free agent and find a better team and launch the triangle offense with Dennis Rodman and well, Scotty may- Pippen. Maybe he's going to slam it all home with the film we talk about next week. Set you up perfectly. So into that, let's get to our nightcap question. So my question to you is, I mean, David Cronenberg is such in control of his craft in a body horror-esque space. So this is going to kind of be, it's going to be a little fun, actually. I, I propose to you five films from film history, uh, Alien, The Thing, Saw, Cat People, and Matt, the last film's escaping me. What is it? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. If David Cronenberg were to attach himself to any of those films within film history, a bracket, which one would he be most suited to tackle? I think you know what I'm going to answer. Do I, I don't know. But I'm going to admit that it took a while to get to what's going to be the obvious. Because I really kicked the tires on Luton's Cat People for a significant amount of time. But the reason I didn't go with cat people is where that space works for me is what you don't see. And that's mostly ever the transformation. Absolutely. Yeah. The antithesis argument to cat people is American werewolf. And that could be done really well. And I could see Cronenberg killing that, but that wasn't one of my choices. So then I'm going to go to the obvious, which is Frankenstein. Good choice. I mean, like, honestly, any choice is good. Sure. (laughs) Sure. You know, that's a beautiful question. Yeah. I love that film mm-hmm. uh, for as bad as the Branagh version is. What does work is the construction of the monster as the coagulated pieces or not co- coagulated. 
um, contributing pieces that make up De Niro. Yeah. As the monster. Mm-hmm. By the end of the movie, he almost is kind of healed and he looks ridiculous. But in the early dates when he's raw and stitched. Yeah, I guess I'm more thinking the universal Frankenstein. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, it's that one. Because when you, you look at that movie just in a nutshell, you're talking about literally bringing a man back from the dead that's constructed from a bunch of different pieces. A different brain, a different body, a different orifice, and the willingness to commit to bringing that back to the life and what you create. I mean, we talked about all this shit with Cronenberg in this episode. Apply that to that film. Oh, yeah. God complex. You could have a lot of fun with that. That's a really important movie in the history of film. Absolutely. Hugely important. Mm -hmm. I might argue that's the most important of all of those first three films. You know what's important about that entire movie is Edward Von Sloan coming out to the audience at the beginning saying, this film's going to scare the shit out of you. Don't say we didn't warn you. You've been warned. Credits. Yikes, what am I in for? (laughs) Remind me when we get off mic, I want to talk to you about the Wolfman for a minute. Oh, sure. But yeah. remind me because I'll forget. Okay. Um, but not on mic today. Okay. Yeah. There's so many cool elements that happen within the space of Frankenstein. And it is the construction of the monster. And they spend 20 minutes building it up in a successful hype machine with no technology to finally reveal him. But the monster proper amongst the inhabitants of that little town and what he does, the little girl in the lake and all, Oh God, that movie and Cronenberg, I think with body dysmorphia horror, can you think of anyone better other than James whale? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because like if we didn't have enough, enough casks to do on this show already, I think a cask of Frankenstein, bride of Frankenstein and the Son. son of Frankenstein is in contention for one of the best trilogies in all of film for what it goes into. No argument. Uh, great choice. Uh, yeah, that's... Well, yeah, you gave me five awesome ones, so... Yeah, I gave you five... I picked the most awesomest of the five I gave you. I'm dying to hear what you got. Because it can't be Frankenstein, because you wouldn't have forgot that, so I know you didn't choose Frankenstein. I picked two, <laughs> because I do. Yeah, Okay. I'm kind of in that cat people space where if Cronenberg could get his, and they remade that film in the early eighties with um, Natasha Kinski and uh, Malcolm McDowell, mm-hmm. Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go there where Val Luton couldn't because of budgetary reasons. Yeah. Uh, I think if Cronenberg had a budget with a film that's as sexually rife as cat people, he could slay it. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I have full faith in that. So it's an honorable mention. Okay, good. Twice. I have to go alien. If Alien, two years later, after Rabbit, finds its way into the hands of Cronenberg through, you know, however 20th Century Fox, and the way they found Ridley Scott through a film like The Duelist, which, whatever the hell, Mm -hmm. that film, I mean, he was kind of just plucked out to direct that movie, and he was kind of a genius when he made Alien. The same could have happened for Cronenberg. That film was rife with phallic imagery, Sex, re- the reproductive process. Jesse wrote an amazing paper in college on the sexuality of Alien that I'm going to make him put on the uh, socials this week. Well, you could go listen back to our Alien episode where I sound like death. And for whatever crazy-ass reason, it's our most downloaded episode of all time, which is fathomable to me. Is it re- still? Still is. Wow. 
Do you like hearing me like that? Like I like I, like I sound like a chain smoker in that episode. No, it was all you could do to get through the podcast with your hot tea and your honey because you were in such bad shape. And I love Alien so much. Uh, but Cronenberg in Alien's hands, can you just imagine mm. the imagery? It, it might be more evocative than it is in that film already. Yeah, well said. I wish. And in, in my afterlife, you know, going back to Soul and Coco, mm-hmm. is a video store where I get to see alternative versions of the what-ifs of filmmaking you know like i can go see the cronenberg version of halloween or i can go see the james cameron spider-man you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the myth the, the the things we didn't get to i think he would have slayed that movie that that could have been just amazing to see him tackle that property we should do a shot on the best films that never oh we did do that shot i mean we could do a couple more on the best films. so many made. good ones huh uh, yeah you're right that again any of those five would be awesome but the alien in Alien is such an awesome creature. I want to, and don't you want to see, like, if he can do what he does next week with Gina Davis, what could he have done with Sigourney Weaver? Real quick, because we're going to get into next week. I threw Saw in there because Saw as torture porn in the horror genre is still body horror and yeah. how you're mutilating your body. In his hands, I think he also could kind of do some interesting things with the aspect of how that film plays out. A game of sorts of how far you're willing to go to save your own life. Okay, so I think you've done now three Mm because you did Cat People and then just those other two. So I'm going to steal one more from you here. And a movie that came up as I was watching today a lot that I wonder if you think would qualify as body dysmorphia horror. Will you give me moments in the hunger? Sure. Because there's the whole mortality and aging process that occurs in that film. And Jesse, again, to this 25th film we've done this week, we have to do that soon. Well, we got to do a vampire cast. We have to let the right one in. And Fright Night. Oh, God. Ooh. <laughs> That's a home run. Mm-hmm. I didn't even see where it landed. Look at that. <laughs> it's still flying. It's still <laughs> flying in the air. Willie Stargell at Dodger Stadium. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh Matt, this has been a lot of fun to show you Rabbit for the first time and to kind of just get the wheels turning on Cronenberg because next week we're going to be running. Yeah. 1986, The Fly. Mm -hmm. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but, and we mentioned it last week, you and I have the best stories about this particular movie and people don't even know what they're in for. They don't. We're in. We're going to get into some fun space next week. Like, just how I came to this movie, what you've experienced from this movie, and then we get to talk about the movie, which I honestly think, I'm just going to say, this is Cronenberg at his best. This is my favorite Cronenberg movie. No doubt. And we, we <laughs> you said something about Jeff Goldblum a couple of weeks ago. What a Lothario he was. He's really good in this role. Really good. And when you tell an actor, hey, you got to become a fly, what does that look like on screen? He kind of does it. Exactly. Visually. So I can't wait to get into into the weeds with, with the fly with you next week. Uh and you gotta come over and watch it. You're like for sure. Yeah, I got the I got the new Blu-ray of it. It's gonna look to tonight to wrap it from 77 looking as good as it did. We gotta keep making discs because those types of films are just gonna like wither away from the 70s if they don't get like an upkeep. How long has it been since you've seen the fly? 
Mm, wow. Six or seven years? I got you beat by double, maybe triple. Really? It's been a long okay. time. All right. This is going to be fun. Yeah. This is going to be a great episode. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I got something underneath my armpit. I'm going to go to the doctor and get it looked at because I don't want it to turn into what rabid became. I'm never wearing deodorant again because I'm sure there's chemicals in that that is going to change my bodily structure forever. And I do not look like Marilyn Chambers shirtless. It's a weird question, but uh, does... Underarm deodorant, do you stain black shirts? Are you a, hang on a second. Are you a gel or a chalk kind of guy? Chalk. Me too. And I'll the just, gel never dries. Well, I'll just say this, like, you know, like I like Old Spice, the scents. Yeah. But Old Spice uh, gel makes me rash out like crazy. So let me give you a shameless plug to a company that I don't know how this just is about to happen. Dollar Shave Club, man. Theirs is really good. Well, you'll take one shave club. I'll take the other one. It's Harry's razors gets into deodorant and shower gels. They kind of rock too. So there you go. Hygiene and economics for you to finish up this week of Ryan. If you think that's a big stretch, then consider that we went from Pixar last week to body dysmorphia horror this week. Guess what's coming? Musicals next. (laughs) Not. (laughs) Not. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Have a good week and we'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rise Mile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. And if you want to leave us some more comments or some feedback, hit us up on any of our social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Rabbit is property of New World Pictures, and Sinpix film properties, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Heart. 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 Heart.